0: Suppose I'm hanging out at my friend's house after COVID is over, of course, and he receives a letter from his recently deceased rich uncle's estate. He opens the envelope with excitement, and as he reads the letter, his eyes get big and his jaw drops. I ask him what's going on, but he's speechless. He can't even answer me, and so he just hands me the letter. As I scan the letter, I read, your uncle has bequeathed you the amount of five million dollars. Immediately, I start jumping up and down and shouting, I'm getting $5 million! I'm rich! My friend looks at me quizzically and says, what do you mean you're rich? The letter's from my uncle. But I respond, the letter says, has bequeathed to you, and I'm the one who's reading it. So that promise is obviously meant for me. Woo-hoo! You would tell me that I was being absolutely silly, that obviously the promise in the letter was not to me and then I can't claim the promise of the $5 million that was made in that letter. Such a situation would be absolutely ridiculous, right? But we often do this exact same thing with the Bible. We find a verse that we like, one that sounds nice and happy and encouraging, and we claim it as uniquely applying to ourselves without acknowledging or understanding the correct context. Just as it would be a really bad idea for me to take the words of my friend's letter out of their context, it's also a bad idea for us to take God's words in the Bible out of context. Last week we discussed John 3.16, which is arguably the most well-known verse in the Bible. This week we'll be discussing what's probably the most popular verse in the Bible in terms of the verse that the Christian industrial complex likes to put on the items that it sells. And that verse is Jeremiah 29 11. I went to Google Shopping and I typed in Jeremiah 29 11, and it came up with wall decor, picture frames, t shirts, rings, keychains, pens, necklaces, and yes, literally hundreds of coffee mugs. It's a verse that's often used to coincide with graduation gifts or as an encouragement for someone who's enduring extremely difficult life circumstances. This verse finds itself being used in all of these uh, contexts because it is a hopeful and encouraging verse. But author author and speaker Jefferson Bethke rightly calls Jeremiah 29.11, quote, the most misinterpreted verse in the Bible. The subtitle of this sermon series is Bringing Clarity to Clichés, and we have turned no verse into more of a cliché than Jeremiah 29.11. Pastor Phil just read this verse in the context of its whole passage a few moments ago, but let me go ahead and read just this verse for you as it's so often quoted and printed on coffee mugs. This verse says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a hope and a future. When we take Jeremiah 29, 11 at face value, the meaning seems clear, right? This is a good translation. Even in the original Hebrew, the words communicate God's good purposes for his people. It's easy to see why this verse is used on so many products and as a verse of encouragement in so many situations. It's an encouraging promise. It's reassuring to think that the Lord has plans for us, that he doesn't have disastrous plans for me, but rather plans to give me a hopeful future. That's great news, right? No wonder this ends up on so many coffee mugs. But as is always essential when we're interpreting scripture, we have to consider the context. We take this verse out of context when we believe that God will allow only good things to happen to us. And when we read this verse out of context, we can come to believe that God has failed us when life proves to be challenging as it often does. So who are the people that Jeremiah is addressing here? To whom is God speaking in this passage? When we expand our reading to the verses and chapters surrounding this promise, we discover that the prophet is speaking to the people of Israel who have been forced into exile in Babylon. In verse 4, at the start of this section where we find verse 11, we read, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. This makes it very clear whom God is addressing with all these words. All the captives who have been exiled from uh, Jerusalem to Babylon. These aren't people graduating college or high school or beginning a new job or looking forward to the future with great expectations. These are people who have been stripped of their family and homeland and sent away to a foreign land. Terrible calamity has already befallen these people. And the future God speaks of, the hope which he promises, is 70 years down the road. We'll come back to that in a minute. But what is this plan that the Lord is speaking of that he has for the exiles? It wasn't a plan for them to get rich and famous and be successful as we so often seem to think when we're talking about the plans that the Lord has for us. It was a plan for the the exile to eventually end and for all the people to return home to Jerusalem, to the place from which they had been exiled. This was the plan, this was the promise, that eventually they would leave the Babylonian captivity and return home. And whereas that promise probably would have produced a modicum of hope in the exiles, it really wouldn't have been something for them to get too joyful and excited about. See, in verse 10, God says that this captivity is going to last for 70 years. 70 years. Most of the people who heard this promise from Jeremiah would not live to see its fulfillment. Jeremiah himself was long dead by the time the Babylonian captivity ended. 70 years. To put that in perspective, the average life expectancy in the United States is currently around 78 and a half years. This was a promise which would not be realized, not be fulfilled until a literal lifetime had passed. I doubt that that's what too many people have in mind when they read, I know the plans I have for you printed on the side of a coffee mug. In fact, many times when we use this verse in its misinterpreted fashion, what we're really trying to say is that our plans will cause us to prosper. Our plans will give us a hope in a future but nothing was going according to the exiles' plans. They weren't planning on going into exile, and they wouldn't have seen exile as a source of prosperity and hope and a future. Their plans weren't God's plans, and it's God's plans which are promised in the passage. When we gift an item with Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven on it, we're implicitly saying that Whatever plans that individual has made for their future are consistent with God's plans for their future. Now, that may or may not be true, but I highly doubt that items with this verse on it are ever given with the thought that God's plans for that individual might involve being exiled for the next 70 years. If you think about it this way, it's actually pretty cruel to give a gift with Jeremiah twenty nine eleven on it because you're kind of wishing 70 years of exile on the person that you're giving it to. Now, furthermore, when we read in this context, we understand that this was a promise to a whole group of people, the people of the nation of Israel who had been forced into Babylonian captivity. In our contemporary Western frame of reference, when we read the word you, we tend to be very individualistic in our thinking. We tend to automatically think when we read you, that refers to me. But this promise to the people of Israel didn't necessarily mean that every individual who was exiled would eventually return there, because many of them wouldn't live to see the promise fulfilled like we talked about a moment ago. This was not an individualistic promise, but a corporate promise which was being made, that the whole group of people, not each individual person, would eventually return to Jerusalem. We have a hard time even thinking in this context, because even if we're in a group and someone says something addressed to you, we would interpret it as applying to each of us in the group, unless otherwise stated. But again, that's not the correct interpretation here. To read this as being individualistically applicable, even to the original audience, would have been incorrect. And it's even more incorrect to read it as being individualistically applicable to us 2,600 years later. Theologian Philip Ryken wrote, Jeremiah's promise should not be taken individualistically. It is not a private promise. Now, am I trying to say that God doesn't desire good things for us, that God doesn't desire for us to have a future and a hope? Of course not. God is good and God is for us. But we don't need to pick verses out of their context and ignore the power of their true meaning in order to convince ourselves of this. Think about it this way. I believe that it was part of God's plan for my wife and I to have our children. But I don't look at the verses where Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to have a son and then claim those words as a promise for Rachel and me. It's true that our children are part of God's plan, but to read that portion of the Bible to support that truth is to completely miss the point of God's words in that context. The same is true if we turn Jeremiah 29 11 into a happy-go-lucky cliché. But beyond understanding the fact that this passage promises a return from exile to a group that will spend the next 70 years away from their homes, we need to understand that preceding this promise, the passage also gives instructions for what people are to do while they're living in exile. Take a look at chapter 29 verses 5 through 7. It says, Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them, so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. The exiles aren't supposed to go to war against the city into which they're exiled. They're not supposed to hide away. They're not supposed to assimilate into the city. God says they're supposed to work for the peace and the prosperity of this foreign land. Is God serious? The Israelites had just been forcibly removed from their home by this foreign uh, horde of invaders and they had been forced to resettle in a strange land and God wants them to seek the welfare of that land and pray for the prosperity of that land? Yes. That's exactly what God wants them to do. God wants the Israelite exiles to be blessings in the land in which they've been exiled. Because they're going to be there for a while. Even in the midst of the exile, the people of God were expected to be blessings to others. If you remember way back in Genesis when God promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation, God told Abraham that because of his descendants, all of the world would be blessed through him. The nation of Israel hadn't exactly been faithful to their calling as God's people. That was one of the reasons that they found themselves in exile. But they were still expected to be God's people, even in exile. So if we look at Jeremiah 29.11 in this context, it's easy to see that it's a misinterpretation to use it as a happy-go-lucky cliché about God blessing our future plans. So am I saying that this verse is useless, that it has nothing to say to us? Absolutely not. Just because the specific context of this verse was addressed to others and there's not a one-to-one correlation, it doesn't mean that this verse doesn't reveal God's character to us. Just as the letter from my friend's uncle would tell me something about the uncle and about the relationship that my friend and he had, so, understanding God's words to the exiles of the nation of Israel tells us things about God and his relationship with his people. It shows us that God is full of grace, that he's willing to forgive, and that he's faithful. Once again, Philip Reichen wrote, This is not a private promise, it is for the entire church. The you in I know the plans I have for you refers to the whole people of God. Before thinking about what the promise means for you, think about what it means for us. Okay, so what does this passage mean to us? It shows us how followers of Christ should be living in the midst of a world that's not our home. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says, For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. We were created for this world but we were not created for this world as it is currently functioning. We're strangers in a strange land. We are in exile. And it's important to remember that we're not home, because when we begin to think that the land of our exile is actually our home, we begin to lose those things which make us distinctive in the first place. If we lose sight of the fact that we're exiles, we lose the goal of blessing the land for the glory of God and begin trying to bless the land for the glory of the land. We're to seek the welfare of the land, but our only allegiance is to be to God during this time of exile. When the Israelites were in exile, I'm sure that many of them wanted to hide or fight or simply blend in, but that's not what God told them to do. He told them to seek the welfare of the city and to pray the prosperity of the city. We're called to the same work of blessing the land of our exile. We're called to seek the welfare of the world and to work for its prosperity. We're not told to work only for the welfare of other Christians or only for the welfare of Americans, but for all of the residents of this world into which we've been sent. We're called to use our salvation, our relationship with Jesus Christ, in order to help give life To the world. How do we do this? Well, in the letter to the exiles, Jeremiah reveals that God wants the Israelites in Babylon to build homes and to plan to stay, to plant gardens and to eat what they produce, to marry and to have children, to find spouses for them so that they can have grandchildren, so that they can multiply and not dwindle away. In other words, God's telling them to live their lives as normal while seeking to be a blessing to the land of their exile. Each aspect of their lives was intended not to be used for selfish purposes for the benefit of the individuals, but to be a part of the welfare of the city for all the people. In the same way, the various parts of our lives with which God has gifted us are all intended to be used to bring blessing to the land in which we're currently exiled. Just as our salvation, our relationship with Jesus Christ, is not something that's solely personal in nature, but rather something to be used for the life of the world, so are all of the aspects of our lives intended to bring blessing to the world in the name of Jesus Christ. The caveat that comes with this, of course, is the fact that we might not live to see how our efforts, on behalf of the welfare and peace and prosperity of the land, actually turn out. We may be gone from this earth before the fruit of all of our attempts to bless the world has fully grown and is ready for harvest. This passage illustrates for us that God is full of grace and mercy, that he's willing to forgive even the greatest disobedience and give another chance. It shows that God keeps his promises because the Babylonian exile did eventually end. This also shows us that we're not going to see the fulfillment of all of God's big-picture promises. So are we willing to place our hope in God, even when his view of the welfare and our hope in our future may not look like comfort in our lifetime? Are we willing to work to dedicate ourselves to seeking the life of the world, even though we might not ever get to see the results? Even if we can't envision or understand what those results might be. There's an old Greek proverb that says, society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they will never sit in. Yes, God has promised us that the exile will end, that we won't be strangers in a strange land forever, but we might not fully get to see what this looks like on this side of heaven. And so friends, Will we plant the trees of blessing, even if we never get the opportunity to see the fruit grow? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Scripture and for teaching us how to read and understand it. Forgive us for the times when we uncritically swallowed interpretations of Scripture which are incorrect. Thank you for your grace, for your willingness to forgive and give us chance after chance, and for your faithfulness to keeping your promises. Thank you for the promise that the exile will end, that you will give your people a future. As we live our lives in this broken world, help us to pray for it, to seek its welfare, and for our lives not to lead to our own selfish prosperity, but to the prosperity of the world in which we find ourselves. May we not hide, fight, or assimilate, but may we be blessings. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, as one God, now and forever. Amen.